the Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. This is Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we're excited to have an ongoing conversation about issues of concern and interest to the body of Christ. Hill Country Institute Live brings guests together with you to talk about issues of vital interest in our lives today. We visit the life and works of giants of another day, such as C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and also spend time with people in ministries doing creative work to fight human trafficking, feed the poor, create quality art, be good stewards of the environment, and much more, all with the heart and mind of Christ. If you're interested in learning about the programs of the Hill Country Institute and hearing and seeing presentations from our conferences on faith and science, faith and art, and other subjects, visit hillcountryinstitute.org. We promise in this show to show the heart and mind of Christ, to treat guests and callers with respect, even if we disagree, and to be true to the historic Christian faith. Today's episode features C.S. Lewis scholar Jerry Root. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, as part of a Hill Country Institute conference on C.S. Lewis and the Divine Presence. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here with you and also to serve with Larry and to be with uh, three of my close, or two of my closest friends in the world, Lyle Dorset and Marge Mead. And we have known each other for 30 years, so it's fun for us to be able to come and serve you together as a team. Um, my, my interest in Lewis came along a little bit late in some regard. You'll have to take this by faith. But when I was in college, I was an athlete. I had no academic interest whatsoever, but I became a Christian at the beginning of my freshman year. I was so moved by the love of God and his forgiveness that I wanted to share with my friends about that great good news, that transforming power of the incarnational Christ. My friends would ask questions I had never thought about, things like the problem of evil or how we know the scriptures authoritative in the word of God or uh, Christ's unique claims or how those stack up against other religions or the problem of evil. None of that had even crossed my mind by the time I'd become a Christian. But when my friends asked the questions, I thought, I won't leave a stone unturned until I can find an answer for you. And I kept seeing this name crop up, C.S. Lewis, but I was lazy and didn't read anything by him. I read through uh, the Bible that first year as a Christian, and my older sister was teaching fifth grade, and she was reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to her children. I read, uh, she told me the plot of that book. I was amazed such books existed, but remember I'd only read five <laughs> up to that time, uh, not counting comic books. So I went and bought a set of the Narnian Chronicles, and I read through those. I was amazed. I said, I want to find out about this guy. I found out he had an autobiography, Surprised by Joy, where he recounts his own encounter with the incarnate Christ, manifests through the Holy Spirit and his guidance in his life. As I read that book, I read that Lewis talked about deep longings of the heart and the quest to find the object of this longing. And that was the book that hooked me, because that book gave me a vocabulary for my own soul. I knew the longings. And so I started reading him voraciously. 
When I graduated from college, a person wisely said to me, you don't get an education in college. All you do is lay a foundation for an education. And commencement means you will now commence that education by building on that foundation. Pick an author who will take you places and make that author your life study. I think that's good advice. I think it could also be pick an author or pick a composer or pick a country, pick a period of history, whatever. But I picked Lewis, and I found that he opened more than wardrobe doors, and he took me to other books and other literature and so on, and I found myself growing and gaining a more robust understanding of life itself. Leanne Payne observed that Lewis's success as a writer was not merely due to his scholarship and his robust imagination, but because he was in touch with the real and that he methodically unmasks all the precious idols that we have substituted for reality. That's true. He allowed me, I know in my own reading, to encounter the real world as it was, not as I would have to have it be. In the 1930s, C.S. Lewis gave a lecture at Oxford University to the English faculty and students, and he said this, We have fulfilled our whole duty to you if we can help you see some given tract of reality. Lewis was an objectivist. Um, There are knowers, he believed, in things to be known, objects, and objects of thought. These objects of thought are identified by definition and thought about inferentially as we develop our thinking. He also recognized that this world, this real world, was infused with the presence of God. He wrote the last line of an essay as theology poetry. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. God is always breaking through and revealing himself in the world he made. Calvin once said that God dawns a garment of creation. Consequently, because the presence of God could be manifest in these things, it should provoke some degree of wonder and awe as we study reality and see the things as God presents them to us. But one of my favorite lines, maybe my favorite line in C.S. Lewis, it's, a, it's a, a statement that he made in chapter 17 of Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, the last book he wrote before he died. There's a word in that uh, paragraph that I want to define for you. I don't mean to insult your intelligence as I define it. You probably already know it. But when I first read this, I had no clue what this word meant. So I looked it up. If you're like I was then, I define it for you. It was the word coruscation. Coruscation. A coruscation is a sudden flash of brightness. I grew up in Southern California. I'd never seen a firefly in my life, except maybe at Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland. When I moved to the Midwest, I remember that first summer being absolutely in awe of seeing fireflies coruscating in the back garden on a humid summer evening or our storms come in chicago now from the west to the east and you can see dark clouds coming your direction and you can see lightning coruscating in the clouds now with that understanding here's what lewis says as he makes a distinction between gratitude and adoration gratitude exclaims very properly how good of god to give me this But adoration asks, what must that being be like whose far-off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. 
He wanted his students to get a vision of reality, but Lewis knew that reality was infused with the presence of God. I remember when I first read that statement, it was when Voyager, the interplanetary probe, was speeding past Saturn, taking pictures of that most mysterious planet in our solar system and sending them down to Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I was amazed when I read the stories and saw the pictures, and they discovered for the first time that the outer ring of Saturn, it's called the F ring, it's braided. It's braided, people. And I thought to myself, what must God be like, though no human eye had ever seen it? He chose to braid the outer ring of Saturn. I have friends who are physicists. I say, why, why is it braided? I've heard five different answers. Each answer is a negation of the other four. One of my friends who's a physicist says, we love this stuff. We love to keep niggling with it till we find out the answer. I shared it with a friend of mine. He says, yeah, Jerry, we don't know if God didn't just braid it for the picture. I think of ships that park themselves over depths of the Pacific Ocean greater than the light of the sun can penetrate. And they dangle cameras into those depths and they take pictures of fish painted neon bright. Why? Can't be to attract a mate. There's no sight in those depths. Matter of fact, how do fish in those depths get together? That itself is an interesting question. And I think to myself, what must God be like? Though no human eye had ever seen it, he chose to paint fish neon bright in the bowels of the ocean. I grew up in Southern California. I always like to see palm trees silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky or a mountain range silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. Now I live in the Midwest, a cornfield silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. There's beauty there if you would willingly distill it out. But we could have lived on a darkened planet and gotten word from on high that there would be one sunset. We could have lined every west coast of every continent and island on our globe and regaled our progeny by writing of that event in our journals and diaries. But what must God be like that he's made our planet a perpetual kaleidoscope of sunrises and sunsets? You've seen them before, glorious as they may be, and everybody stops to notice, and you're standing along a line of a string of people in awe. And you watch as grief attends your heart as it just dissolves before your eyes. Don't fret. He's so liberal with his glory, there'll be another one. One star twinkling in a night sky is enough to awaken wonder and awe in the mind and heart of every right-thinking and right-feeling individual. But what must God be like that he's glittered the night sky with stars and moons and shooting stars and comets? And I wish you could have been with me with a bunch of Wheaton students at our Northwoods campus up by Lake Superior. Is at midnight, the students knocked on my cabin door where I was teaching, and they said, Jerry, they're out. And I went outside, and I saw pulsating and coruscating in the night sky the reds and blues and greens and whites of the northern lights. And we stood on the ski dock for two and a half hours and sang songs and hymns of praise to God because it seemed the only just thing to do to render to him the glory and adoration due his name. Wow! What must God be like that he made delicate things like hummingbirds? 
flower petals, that he made butterflies and peacock feathers. My word. G.K. Chesterton said one elephant with a trunk looked odd, but every elephant with a trunk looked like a plot. God is calling us to attend to him. But C.S. Lewis will never let you stop there. He wants to find God in the world as we really face it, in the midst of this real world. And Lewis forces us to ask questions something like this. What must God be like that there are AIDS babies born in Africa? Earthquakes in Haiti. School shootings in Pennsylvania. And tsunamis in Japan. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis wrote, if our religion is something objective, then we must never divert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it's in the precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we begin to discover what we do not yet know and need to know so desperately. When your life is out of whack and all the pieces seem to be fractured, can you discover incarnational reality at that place? Can you discover the ministry of God in your life in those places? I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I used to read about the Swiss Alps. I'd say, wow, I think that'd be a place where a person could be pretty spiritual. But my world was a world where chain link fences came together with asphalt playgrounds that had cracks in them. And weeds were growing up in that intersection between the fences and the asphalt. And you could see the weeds coming up and the paper caught in the netting. I want to find God in those places too. And if I can find him there, I think I can find him anywhere. And Lewis drives us to that. Leanne Payne says, Lewis helps us to unmask our idols. He helps us to recognize our false infinites. In Perlandra, Lewis talks about false infinites. In that particular uh, story, in his science fiction stories, Venus is the planet Perlandra. And Ransom, Elwyn Ransom, a character modeled after Lewis's good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, has to go there to divert the fall. In that world, the fall would occur not if somebody ate some fruit from a tree, but if people who lived on floating islands all over that world were to overnight on the solid ground. The solid ground could tempt us to think we have it all figured out. The earth is solid beneath our feet. But Lewis knew that that sort of thing couldn't be true because he writes about floating islands and seas and continents and surprised by joy when he describes the death of his mother. She represented to him stability, hope, nurture, loving caresses and kindness. But she died when he was nine. And he said, for me, the continent of Atlantis had sunk and it was all seas and islands after that. This reality, Lewis reminds us, while we may be tempted to think we have some understanding of it that's permanent, Lewis says, no, we're trying to understand the God who's infinite, and we are pea brains, and he is big, 
and we'll find ultimate security in him. There's a big idea in Lewis that develops this further. It's the idea that reality, reality, the incarnate reality where God is manifesting himself in the world he has made, this reality is iconoclastic. An iconoclast is a person who breaks idols. I have an image of God. I heard a great sermon. I read a book. I had a conversation with friends. And like a puzzle that's starting to come together, a few of the pieces come together and the picture is emerging with greater clarity. But that image, helpful in the moment as it may be, if I hold on to it too tightly, it will compete against my having a growing understanding of God. C.S. Lewis said in Surprised by Joy, God cares nothing about temples built, only about temples building. If you want to experience the presence of Christ in your life, then your temple has to be one that is always being built. It's in process to receive this God who's always offering himself in fresh ways to us in the midst of our fresh challenges. I I remember years ago giving a lecture on C.S. Lewis and postmodernism. I I think more people talk about postmodernism than actually read about it. It's like the student was asked, have you ever read War and Peace once? And he said, no, but I wrote a book report on it. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe I was utilitarian in giving such a lecture. Because maybe if Lewis is relevant in the postmodern discussion, it will keep me gamefully employed because I lecture on C.S. Lewis. But postmodernism is fracturing. I think Lewis will still be talked about when postmodernism is a thing of the past because Lewis was trying to hook his thoughts into the reality that transcends any given movement or time. But anyway, while I was lecturing on Lewis and postmodernism, there are about as many people there as are here. This one woman stands up right in the middle of this thing. It was mostly a gathering of Christians. And she said, we don't need any of this. I don't know about you, but I'm not very life-skilled. And new opportunities always reveal to me a level of awkwardness. I didn't know what to do about this lady, and I'd never had anything like this happen to me before. But I couldn't ignore her, so I said, why do you say we don't need any of this? She said, because we have the mind of Christ. And I suspected that she had spent too much time on the continent. I said, do you know where the Bible says that? She didn't know. I said, it says it in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And if we have the mind of Christ in the way you might be suggesting, i.e., we've got it all figured out, then why was it in chapter 1 of that book that church was so fractured and some people said, we're of Apollos, we're of Paul, we're of Peter, we're of Christ. If they had the mind of Christ in the way you suggest, why was there such division among them? When Paul says we have the mind of Christ, do you think he means that we've achieved omniscience? Or do you think he means we have as a resource this valuable, valuable resource and with it the responsibility to seek to plumb the depths of it more? See its applications to questions we have yet to ask. To see it in all of its wonder, not shut down as if we've got it figured out. Lewis said in Reflections on the Psalms, the worst of bad men are religious bad men. 
The quicker I might be willing to die for my faith, maybe the quicker I'd be willing to kill for my faith or paint a thus saith the Lord across my present understanding. No, for Lewis, reality is iconoclastic. He says, I want God, not my idea of God. I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. I want my spouse, not my idea of my spouse. I want myself, not my idea of myself. The idea isn't new in Lewis. It's everywhere. We shouldn't be surprised in a world made by God. Baron von Hugel, an author who influenced Lewis, said reality is iconoclastic in this way. He said to his niece, Gwendolyn Green, beware of the first clarity. Press on to the second clarity and the third clarity. Let this life's experience take your breath away as you discover ever greater depths. Robert Browning in his uh, poem, Rabbi Ben-Ezra, write down the name of that poem. If you're married, read it every year on your anniversary. It begins, grow old along with me, the best is yet to be. But around line 20 or 23 in that poem, Browning says, and welcome each rebuff that turns our smoothness rough. We think we've got it all figured out. We think... We've got a nice, smooth earth, but the earth isn't smooth. It has complexity, geography. It has peaks. It has valleys. Welcome the thing that helps you to see it as it is, rather than how you must have it be. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lewis writes, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's written by Clive Staples Lewis, who knew nobody deserved to be named Clive Staples Lewis. Eustace, as we encounter him, we discover he has the heart of a dragon under the skin of a little boy. And it just so happens that with his cousins, Lucy and Edmund, he gets sucked into this world called Narnia and becomes part of a voyage of the Dawn Treader led by King Caspian, trying to take Reepichief, the most chivalrous mouse who ever walked in Narnia, to Aslan's country, and also to find out what happened to the seven lost lords. Eustace is convinced everybody else in his world's messed up, and he's the only one that's got it together. And he can't see reality. He has to discover truth. And for that to happen with his heart so hard, God has to break in somehow. They get to an island after a storm. The ship's had a lot of damage. Everybody's supposed to do work, but not Eustace. He wanders off. And ironically, in that particular world, the magic of that world, Eustace turns externally into the very thing he's been internally. He turns into a dragon. And he has this moment that Browning would say, welcome each rebuff that turns or smoothness rough. He looks into a pond and sees the truth. Incarnational reality is broken in. Oh, it all comes to him. He's so sad. He makes his way back to the others and he starts to realize how he's been. He scratches in the sand to tell them that he's Eustace, to alleviate their fears. He's not a dragon who will do them harm. They comfort him, and 
In his dragon-like state, he can help them. They had lost a mast on the ship, and so he knocks down a tree, takes his claws and brushes off the branches, tempers the wood with his hot breath, puts it in place on the ship, goes around and gathers goats and so on to revictual the ship and flies over the island and says where the sweet water is. The night's going to come when everybody on the ship knows they have to leave the next morning and they wonder what they're going to do with Eustace and he wanders back to his dragon lair. And as he reported it, it was that night he had this strange encounter as a lion showed up. Oslon, the Christ figure of those books. He said, I was bigger than that lion, but I was afraid. And the lion said to me, you must undress yourself. The lion comes as God comes to each of us. You must undress yourself. Eustace said it dawned on him that dragons are like snakes and lizards and scaly things. So he thinks maybe I could just shed my proper skin and throw tremendous effort. He sheds his skin, but when he looks in the pond, he's still dragon. Again, he tries and he's still dragon. A third time frustrated, he tries, and still he's dragon. Reality is iconoclastic. He has to discover he cannot fix what's broken in himself. Only God can do this. And Oslan says, I must undress you. And Eustace surrenders as that lion claw cuts through that dragon flesh all the way to that dragon heart. And makes him boy again. Wow. Wow. Eustace goes back in the gray dawn moments of the new day. And Edmund is the one that is sent to play father confessor to him. Who was Edmund? Oh, he was the one who had his own encounter with the incarnate Aslan who could find out that there was more even for Edmund to do as there would be more for Eustace to do and more for you and me to do. It was Tennyson who picked up the theme, reality is iconoclastic, when he says, our little systems have their day, they have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. Our best understanding of God needs to give way to more robust understanding was Lucy who on her second trip back to Narnia sees Oslan for the first time and she says Oslan you're bigger he says oh no child I am not but every year you grow you'll find me bigger here's the incarnation C.S. Lewis in letters to Malcolm said the world is crowded with God every bush is a burning bush He walks everywhere incognito, and we must awaken to him and even more remain awake. In The Great Divorce, Lewis's satirical um, play on Dante's divine comedy, Lewis finds himself in hell. He ends up through a magical bus ride getting brought up to the threshold of heaven. He finds that everybody who encountered him in hell is unreal. They're shade-like. They've denied the central reality of the universe. 
And consequently, they've been diminished by that. And they're just shades. And the reality of heaven is such that the weight of their shade-like bodies won't even press down the grass beneath their feet. It's like walking on a bed of nails. They worry if it might start to rain, that the rain would be like machine guns shooting down on them. One man tries to pick a flower and finds out the stem is as hard as diamonds. And each of these people have somebody coming out of heaven to confront them, to present them with incarnational reality. Lewis has George MacDonald come. Just as Dante had Virgil, the poet he appreciated so much, come. In the midst of these different encounters of people from heaven trying to urge those from hell to let go of what they're holding in God's place, Lewis describes each of these encounters. And one of them is this glorious woman, Sarah Smith of Golders Green. Lewis says, wow, she must have been a great lady. She's attended by many, many people. There's much glory, celebration as she comes. And George MacDonald says, no, you would have never heard of her on earth. Oh, but there was something going on inside of her. And every person whose life she touched, there was transformation. And she comes this man who's her husband. But he's, there's this dwarf and he's holding on to a string with this huge tragedian actor playing the victim. And Lewis thinks it's the tragedian who's the real person. And he finds out it's the dwarf. And this tragedian is the alter ego of the dwarf. And the dwarf is hiding behind the pretense of his false self. And Lewis says the light that reached him, reached him against his will. As the light was penetrating, the grace of God was coming. And he continued to resist. If you have enjoyed this portion of Jerry's talk and would like to hear more, please check out part two of C.S. Lewis and the Real Presence of God on the Hill Country Institute live podcast. 